Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is my good friend, Holly Hughes. Holly is an intuitive healer, award-winning essayist, young adult fiction author, and public speaker. I, I should have said Holly Seychelle Hughes, I'm sorry. Rachel, yeah, there's a Rachel. couple Holly Hugheses. Yeah, thanks. Right. <laughs> Holly infuses her unique personal style, intuitive gifts, and personal healing stories to guide clients through a step-by-step -step process to help them claim their voice, their passions, and their self-worth. Her book, Real, Not Perfect, How to Become Your Happy, Authentic Self, will help you to stop hiding behind people's expectations and discover the version of you you want to be. She also co-leads Writer's Retreats with New York Times bestselling author, Nova Rensuma, and hosts a series of self-help, intuitive, and healing workshops called Vitamin C for the Soul. I love that. So let me ask you, what was the spark that drove you to embark on this path that you're currently on? Yeah, I think if you look back, being a more mature person at this point in my life, I went through so many things that brought me here, right? I tried to be who I thought I should be until who I was meant to be just wouldn't let me do that anymore. So I've always had intuitive gifts. Um, I always had dreams. I always had insight. What I didn't know is that everyone else didn't have them either. But at one point in my life, um, I was working in film and TV, living it out in LA, doing the crazy film thing. And I realized I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore because I was becoming what I hated. I was angry. I was, I was working so hard. I was, I call it, I say that anger is a fossil fuel and it's what I was using. The F you, I'll show you, I can do it. I'll prove that I can make it that just erodes a person from the inside out. So um, about 10 years ago, which I can't believe it's been 10 years, my husband and I sat down at the kitchen table and we said to each other, do we want a life where we have to work hard to get by or one we can enjoy? And we did the radical thing and changed our entire life. We picked up, we moved across the country. We're in North Carolina now. If you ever told me I was going to live in the South uh, any time in my life, I would have been, no, I had to get over my own prejudices and expectations of what the South is because it's not that. 
those are stories, right? I mean, there's good and bad everywhere, but it really came to this point. So we came here and then I finally, after being in LA for 20 years, got to own my creativity. My writing flourished, my businesses flourished because I was no longer giving it to people. I wasn't sacrificing myself to what I thought I needed to be. And that's really what happened. You know, it's so funny because everybody's different, but it's like the story is so similar. You know, I was working at Fox. I was on the road Monday through Friday for 40, 50 weeks a year, chasing what I thought was my purpose, making a lot of money, eating at great restaurants, traveling, you know, lavishly. And I didn't, I, I wasn't happy. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't know this until eight and a half years ago, when I finally found the right therapist, who did four months of research on me to diagnose me properly with severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring. And that that was driving all of my addictions, which took everything away from me. And now that, and this prompted me to start into this work because I didn't want pe people to um, go through what I went through. Yeah. And it was very painful. And um, just like you said, now that I've done that and realized that my purpose is to help others, every day I feel like I'm closer to my authentic self. And but not perfect. No, perfect. That's what right. I like to tell. Like, right. That's the whole point. I like to tell people when they come see me as like a healer, I'm not someone on top of a mountain. I make mistakes. <laughs> I'm moody, I, but I own it. I own it. And one of the things that you said before, which I thought was so important and actually can bring me to tears because I think it's so beautiful. It is how do you ask for help? Yeah. Because that was one of the major things I had to learn because yeah. my role was always like, I can do it. I kept secrets because I can handle it better than you can handle it. Right. So like right. I can handle it. I can handle it. I can do it. But like when you can take a breath and ask for help, it doesn't mean you're weak or less than, or, or, or whatever stupid story, not stupid, whatever story it's that your emotional truth is at that point that you don't think you deserve it on some level. But when you do, it's such a relief to see who shows up for you. And then you can also so weed out the people in your life or put them in like where they belong. Right. Because we're all addicted kind of to our phones, like even me. And I hate that, but I, I put it away every night, but the, a lot of the relationships feel real, but then like in this world of being disconnected for a year, physically of not having touch or like one-on-one -on -one communication, we know how empty so many people are feeling. I went through a horrible depression during this horrible. And one time, like, was it, I forget how many years ago now I got depressed and, and my world went silent. So all those gifts that I have, my clear audience, clairvoyance, all of that stuff went away. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, the world is so quiet. And I felt so alone. And I was like, is this what everyone else feels like that? I didn't even realize that I'm, I was always kind of plugged in. 
that I was always feeling and receiving stuff. And then I had to like get help for my depression. I also had to heal from a surgery. And then I had, I just, it just changed how I went about like everything. And then because I, I call myself moody and I own it, I go high and I go low. I'm an artist, right? So some days I'm really into whatever I'm doing and I'm writing or if I'm helping different mindsets. I am a person who's an expressive introvert. So I can be out there and be with people, but I need my time to recover. I really like being alone sometimes. The slippery slope for me is when the alone time isn't enough right? Like where I'm just like, I just want to be alone more. I just want to be alone a little more, a little more. And for me, that's how my depressions creep back in. Thank you for that. Um, So I don't know, you've covered a lot already, but I want to just ask if there's anything else about your personal story that you'd like to share. Yeah, I think that, um, it's, it's really interesting. Like for me, I, I know you're going to ask me a little bit about my father and my family, you know, I'm going to save that part for there. So everyone keeps listening, but um, <laughs> I identified as a young woman, like my, as my father, cause I look like him. Hmm. Right. So I should be strong and I should do this and I should do this and I should be successful. And he's a self-made man and he came from nothing and he was abused and I could do better. I could do better. I could do better. But I think part of what I think needs to shift in this awesome age of Aquarius is what the definitions of success are, because the American dream doesn't work anymore. We're in a very different culture. And and just being a consumer or a product, right? We're all products at this point because our dad is being mined all the time. Like it, it we need to shift that so that what we value changes. And I think that for me in the world is crazy. We have all of these labels and we're defining people and we're not forgiving people and there's no grace and whatever. There's nothing that is, we've become what we hated a little bit from my perspective, right? So I'm, I'm watching this and as an empath, I'm feeling all of this and I'm like, so you wanna be able to define and name yourself, that's fine. But when it, it isolates you from having connection to anybody else is that's the the wrong edge, wrong end of the blade. So I think my story is I was like, I was going to achieve and I had a five-year plan. Oh yeah. I was really good at making plans. And then God's like plans. I'm going to just blow that one up for you. And I'll just blow that one up for you. And when I turned 28, it was like, I, I had a starter marriage is what I call my marriage in my twenties. And he was verbally and emotionally abusive. I was probably a hair away from getting physically hurt by him. I thought I had to sacrifice to love, to receive love. I just thought my job was to give until I was empty and depleted and then not worry about me ever. And I think when I, when I found a therapist, right, who helped me like identify things in my life, like I just numbed, I didn't even know I had emotions. I didn't know because it was my job to be happy and strong. And then when she opened the door and I came in, I was in a panic attack, honestly. And I came in, I was like, what is this? She's like, explain it. And I tried to explain it. She goes, you're angry. And I was like, what, what? I am angry. 
I'm not an angry person. And then I cried for three days. I just sobbed. I sobbed for the girl who could never express it. I sobbed for the times I should have been angry and was angry and was not able to protect myself. And I was in bad situations. Like all of that just kind of unraveled. But that unraveling and that feeling let me rebuild. And I, and, and that I am grateful for. I like to tell people like sometimes that emotional story that is defining you is holding you back. And if you let it go, and if you just feel it, I promise it won't break you. If you feel it, it's going to hurt, but there's so much help. Just like you said, ask for help, especially therapists, right? Like, and there's people who do what I do. There's therapists. There's so much help group, whatever, get it. And you can feel better. And then your life might look different, but that's okay. That's okay. You don't have to fit someone else's expectation of you to live the life that's going to make you the happiest. You know, <clears throat> Holly, there's, there's over 300 million people in the world who have depression. Only half of those people get treatment. And 90% of those who get treatment improve. And when I heard that, I said, you know, and it's mostly men who don't ask for help. And I said to myself, you know, I've, I've got to do something to help these men ask for help. Because I, you know, I was in denial. I was living, living a, a, a double life for a long time. And, you know, I saw that my ideas of masculinity, while intellectually I knew what healthy masculinity or integrated masculinity is, I wasn't living it. And, you know, this is one of the focuses of my work is to let people know, especially men that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to trust other men. And, you know, it, it, I, I had three good friends in the last couple of years that I had coffee with on a Wednesday. And on a Monday, I get a call from another buddy who said, hey, did you hear about Joe? He hung himself over the weekend. So I had three of these. And I mean, I go numb. And I, it just spurred me on to do this work. And I feel like I've found my purpose. I don't care what others think. I'm going to say what I, whatever I'm going to say because it comes from me. It comes as a result of my personal story. And I don't care what others think. It, it, it's, this is who I am. And, you know, if you want to listen, fine. If you don't, you don't have to listen. But I'm trying to reach men and because they can't, you know, this is a blind spot for a lot of men. And, mm. and this, we're talking about mental health, a topic, depression that nobody likes to talk about. And it, it needs some light shed on it. And I got to tell you, most of the feedback I get on social media is from women and my guests, my female guests as well, who applaud what I'm doing because 
nobody else was doing it. And that, that tells me a lot. You know, these women are victims of relationships, whether it's personal relationships or in the workplace where they're being talked over, mm-hmm. they're not allowed to tell their story. And, and a man must realize that his role as an integrated masculine man is to create a safe environment for a woman to be who she is and the man not be intimidated by that. And the man realized that he can't fix her. (laughs) He's a man. How can I tell you what to do with your problems? I'm a man. I'm not a woman. But a lot of men tell their problems to women because that's the easier, safer route to go. And they'd rather sweep it under the rug, think that it's going to go away one day, or or they'll just, you know, white knuckle it through. When, if they don't, this is when risky behavior shows up. And, you know, men go to alcohol, drugs, Mm -hmm. pills, domestic violence, suicide, all these mass shootings that, that are happening. It just seems like 90% oh, yeah. of- it's so mental health oriented. I think yeah. so. Like I grew up as a kid on Long Island and the, I lived very near the Kings Park Mental Hospital and it was huge. It's actually on all waterfront property. It's crazy. <laughs> but, but those institutions, even though they have a very bad rap, I'm sure things happened. They also helped. I think we need access, mass access. I know um, I don't really like talking about my daughter on social media because she's a child and so, and she's not allowed on it, but there are children in her age group who, who have gone through some crazy stuff. Right. And the parents are desperate, are desperate to find help in some, and I just wish that like mental hospitals and in that kind of, even though state, I'm going to call it state run or federally run mental care and capacity. It, it, it's needed. Therapy is exceedingly expensive. It is out of reach for so many people, right? Because it's over a hundred dollars an hour, right? So I don't know, especially in the world of COVID, a lot of people I know are out of business, right? So it like there needs to be access for the person to ask help, help. I need help. And if it's for children, if it's not the kid, obviously it has to be the parent. And those are tough, tough things because I think a parent recognizes something's not right. They try to either ignore it or they say it's a phase or, you know, maybe they'll get through it or how can I help? And they, and they do, but at some point we, we need more when it comes to a mental illness, a depression or whatever is going on. Like that is, I am not a licensed therapist. I know several because I know I like to refer, right? Like you, you need help. Honestly, if clients come to me and they're just coping with depression, I feel it as a very intense headache in the front left part of my head. And I'm pretty immediate in telling them they need help other than me. I can't woo woo depression. I can help heal an emotional truth, your story, a pain that helped create the depression, but until you get the depression under control, 
And sometimes that means several rounds of medicine. Sometimes medicine doesn't work right away. You have to give it time and space. You didn't get depressed overnight. Please be patient with yourself when coping with the healing process. That's what I think for sure. Yeah. Well, let me ask you what in this work that you do, how do you describe your style that you use? Is there a central message that you try to get across? That's really interesting. I tend, people usually come to me when therapy fails or they're tried something for a while or they know something's wrong, but they don't know how to name it. And so my gifts are like, I'm all the Claire's and there's five of them. So I'm Claire Voyant, Claire Cognizant, Claire Sentient, Claire Gustafsson, and I always forget one. Oh, whatever. There's five. I'm also an empath and I can see dead people, but I don't enjoy that process. Um, so what happens is someone will come in and I will immediately tap into, I'm going to call it their higher self because depending on how you believe in God, I don't want to limit this, but I feel you soul. And then I get aches and pains all over my body and I get messages and I start seeing things and hearing things from your guides. Your guides can be angels. They can be people who pass. They can, but typically not. I call them interdimensional beings. Cause I think it just kind of covers everything. Um, I have tapped into, um, different I'm Jewish, but I see mother Mary Magdalene. I've, I've tapped into everything because the love on the other side doesn't care what you call it or what religion, like, you know, it's not going to not help you because you have a different faith that doesn't exist over there. So basically I'll tune into that and I'll know the hurt that often they don't want to utter. And so I'll just bring it out of them. Um, I'll try to meet them where they're at. And then um, a typical session is an hour. So about like 40 minutes of talking, of doing like, like some energy work and conversation of me saying, I see this going on in that you know, how do you want to change it? Because I also believe whoever comes to see me, I don't have a say so in what they want their life to be. I'm just there to facilitate what they want, right? So if they want to heal at what pace do you need to heal at? And then after we talk, I do, it's very similar to Reiki, but without symbols. I have a massage table. I have a person lay on it. They have all their clothes on it. And I just walk around them and I channel a guided meditation specifically for them to kind of help clear away what is stuck to them, cut cords and all of that fun stuff. Every single person on the table opens their eyes at the end and looks at me like, what did, what was that? I was like, yeah, that's the magic. It's very hard to explain, but in, it's like an amazing sleep while someone praying over you and you're receiving that goodness. So that is the best way I know how to explain it. But I've helped people transition careers, relationships, um, like how they're dealing with a person in their life, how to set up a boundary, how to say no, how to ask for help. All of that kind of comes into it, but it always comes down to healing the story of some part of them that wasn't loved the way they needed to be loved. And I think that's the root of almost everything. Right on. All right. So regarding that, what has been the most challenging aspect of all that work for you? I think for me, I, I really want to help. Right. And there's only so much I can do. And then I have to, um, you know, I have to let it go. And the person leaves the room. 
right? So I think that is the hardest part. Um, the other hard part, I think, especially in the year of COVID and all of everything that happened with the police shootings, it was just so overwhelmingly sad on the planet and it, the, it smelled of fear and that overwhelmed me. It literally knocked me down. So being able to create boundaries, energetic boundaries that protect me from the fear and pain is something that I'm always working on. Awesome. Um, and then conversely, can you identify a moment where you felt the most gratification for the work that you do? Yeah, I got a note from someone actually today on Instagram saying um, they had got my book and she's like, I got a healing I didn't even know I needed. So like, even like, that'll make me cry that I'm a very sentimental person. I'm a tough nut, but I'm super sentimental about things like that. Knowing I had another woman who had um, struggled with infertility and um, was gracious enough to be vulnerable with me for a while. And um, I created like a meditation just for her during her pregnancy. And then she sent me the picture of her child and thanked me for just like being a safe space for her to be whatever she needed to be when we were together. And like that, that brought me to tears as well. I love knowing I helped make a difference. I like to say it's not me doing it. I'm the facilitator of the energy. It's not like I had not magic myself, but um, those things that is awesome. Cool. Well, this is, this is deep work. This is very uh, uh, challenging work. So what happens when you go through a day and you come home and you're overwhelmed with feelings and emotions? How do you deal with that? Do you, where did you know that you needed to ask for help and, and you know, seriously put it out there that you did need help? So I think my ultimate story of where I started healing when I was younger was I was at work. I was producing my first show for HBO. I was like 26 and the um, production designer came up to me and she said, do you know that every day at three o'clock you cried? Mm. And I looked at her and I was so mad, but I didn't know I was mad because I didn't know what anger was yet. Yeah. And I was like, what the are you saying to me? And she's like, every day at three o'clock you cry. And she handed me the card of her therapist. And I was like, she's insane. I never want to work with her again. Blah, blah, blah. My whole internal dialogue. And then that day at three o'clock, I went to the bathroom and I was crying. And I had no awareness that my coping mechanism up until that point in my life was disassociation. So I would journal and forget. So everything I was feeling my whole life is in all these journals I have, um, but that I didn't know how to process it or like work it through did that. So I ended up calling that therapist. And so a stranger knew I needed help before I ever did. And that is what really saved me. That's great. That's great. So I grew up on Long Island. I went to Garden City High School. Where did you grow up? Smithtown, Suffolk County, North Shore. Oh my <laughs> God, that's way out there. 
I know. I know. When I know when people are like, you grew up in New York, I'm like, I didn't. I didn't. I grew up on Long Island, like very far from the city. Although I have to say, Long Island in New York, you're beautiful. You're beautiful, but you're not my vibration. So the minute I graduated high school, I left and I didn't go back. It's just not like when I'm there, I don't feel comfortable. So you can say that again. <laughs> so Let's talk about your dad. What, mm. How would you characterize him as a man? Was he tough on you? Did he ever show you love? Talk about his feelings or emotions. So my dad was a high-functioning alcoholic. Mm. So I grew up with a man who, so he grew up poor, like hungry poor, and he was severely abused. I didn't really know that growing up, obviously, right? Like I didn't think my grandparents' place was awful. Like I, to me, it was cool. Um, so he used his anger as fuel to become chemical engineer, Brooklyn College, became a success. It's, it's super cool. He's, he's brilliant when it comes to science. Um, and as a little girl, he, we would do special things together. So he'd take me to hockey games, right? So I loved that. Or yeah, he, or we'd do trips. Like he, he was about doing some, a, a, a big demonstration of how he cared that way. As I got older, um, what I also understood is he came home raging every night. Now, when I say rage, you can't possibly know unless you lived in my house because <laughs> no one on the outside knew that he'd be like screaming and his veins would be popping and he would, and he was really venting about his day on us, right? So he'd come home screaming at my mother and this is this and this is that, whatever. He was never really home for dinner. He was a workaholic, right? So, um, workaholic, alcoholic. Um, and it wasn't until we really got older. So my house burned down when I was 17 and that was really hard. Um, we lived in like four rental houses that year. And that's really, I went to college and I didn't come back. Right. Cause my college applications burned. It was like a, it's like a whole other layer of stress. That's a nice way to put it onto that relationship. As I got older, my father's behavior, I was always nervous being out with him because I didn't know when he might blow, right? I didn't, at a party, I didn't know when he was going to offend someone. I didn't, uh, I was always afraid. Um, and it was my normal. He would, I learned at one point not to pick up the phone after 12 o'clock in the afternoon because he was drunk and he called me the wrong name, talk about things and say things. He would go out to dinner with my friends and eviscerate me like verbally because he was drunk. Um, he left my mother, married his drinking partner, and then it got even worse. Um, you know my husband, um, but the first time my husband met him, it was like a family function. We were in Florida visiting and we had come back to my dad's house. It was me. I think my brother was there. Yeah, he was. And my father started eviscerating my brother for what, for, I guess he didn't like his drunk ass wife at the time. I don't know. It was like some, it was nothing rational, right? There was no rationality to it, but I went into how I survived in my house, which I just sat and I, like, I wasn't there. Like I was in the room and I was mortified and I was dying inside, but I could not leave which wouldn't happen to me now, right? Like I wouldn't be that person. Rusty picked me up. He picked me up. 
to get me out of harm's way, which is part of why I love my husband so much. Right. So he picked me up and moved me. He's like, where'd you go? And I was like, oh my God, this man will never see me again because I would never be part of that either. Right. If I, if I have, but it's my normal. So my dad got sober 10 years ago, our relationship. I love him. So the drunk version is my father. And then there's my dad. When he first got sober, I moved back to New York for a year. My husband agreed to do this because I was so desperate to know him. I was so desperate to know the man. We never went out to dinner once. I lived there for a year. I lived 20 minutes away from him. He could never make the time. So my dad loves me to the best of his ability and his ability often hurts me. Mm. Yeah, so that is how... Yeah, it is for me. It's complicated. It's complicated because he is who he is and he cannot change. All right. So let's interject the idea of masculinity here. And do you think that it, it ever occurred to him that his behavior was within the masculinity norms that he grew up with, either learned from his parents or friends or the media, the good old boy network, not asking for help for fear that he didn't want to be labeled as not a real man. Yeah, I'm really, I was thinking about that one. I find it curious. I think he wouldn't know to ask for help because it was his job to provide, right? If that is his main purpose. And he was self-medicating with alcohol, right? So any clear thought is not possible. I don't know that there was anyone around him who could help or do better. Although, you know, for years, we all begged him not to drink. But it didn't work. So now that he's gotten sober, do, mm -hmm. you, do you view his behavior as different and more of an integrated masculine man or did he just put the plug in the jug and everything else is the same? I call it, I heard an expression a few years ago, a dry drunk. Yep. So he has compulsive behaviors, right? For a while it was vitamins, right? He took a lot of vitamins. He spent his time organizing his vitamins, right? It was kind of like that. He's an older gentleman now. <laughs> So I like to place my, that's the category I like to place my parents. So it's very different. Um, so there are times when he's really present and I'm always grateful for those moments. Right. Um, and then there's just times where I'm dealing with an older man who, sir, who has a disease that has affected his mind. So it's like that. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about abuse in the family. I, mm. I didn't know it until I left for college that I was abused by my parents, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, verbally. And, you know, the first thing that all my buddies wanted me to do when I got to college was here's, here's the bong, here's the pot this is what we do. And then we're going to go out and drink until we pass out. Mm -hmm. So you've talked about depression. 
um, I'm just curious what you think was the cause of that. Did, you know, was abuse uh, uh, a part of that or was it just what was going on in your life? I think, um, I think it was part of what's going on in my life. I think my depression is definitely hormonal and mental related, right? But my coping mechanism when I was young was vodka, <laughs> right? Like, cause my dad would drink glasses, glasses of vodka. I mean, he would always have a case. I mean, there's like the alcohol in the houses and like an insane amount, but again, that was my normal. So I was like, that's not whatever. So at one point in college, um, I was about to graduate. I was determined to do it in four years. So I took summer school. And so I never had time off. Right. So I was, I just burned out and I was dealing with the house fire that I had never gone to therapy over. And I was also sexually assaulted at 15. So like, these are secrets and I didn't tell anyone because I could handle it. I didn't want to add to the fuel in the house. I didn't want to add to the pressure, right? I didn't want to burden anyone with that. So I was waiting tables at the time when we wait tables till like two in the morning, go across the street till four and just drink, right? And my friends pulled me aside, my two friends, and they said, you're out of control and we're worried about you. And I looked at her drunk as a skunk. And I said, I am, and I'm going to be out of control for two more weeks. And then I'm not going to drink anymore. And they said, what? And I think I was drunk for almost two weeks. It was nasty. And it would take like five drinks to get a buzz. I mean, I was really good at drinking by then. Um, and then I just, I didn't drink for a year. I just stopped. And I was seeing if I was an alcoholic, not, still not understanding that my father was, I had no understanding that my father was an alcoholic until I was in my thirties. Mm. I just, because that is seriously my disassociation. And it took my therapist to say, read your journals. And I said, what? Read them dad's home drunk, dad's home drunk, dad's over and over for years. And I have no memory, no memory. Cause that's how I protected myself. So, um, I didn't drink for a long time. And then I was like, Oh, and then I, I just, I, my, how I was coping then after that was being busy and a hard worker. I was going to hide in my work. I'll be the best at my work. And that's what happened at 28 when I burned out on that. And then I finally was like, I need help. So for me now, when I've gotten depressed, it really is a, a wave of grief. It's a wave of grief that I cannot explain why I'm feeling that way. And I, I can't get out. And it takes all of my capacity to parent just to get, you know, feed my kid or whatever. And that's when I've known um, that I needed more. Okay. So you have children. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> How do you think you would characterize yourself as a mother? Strong. Um, I really have an opinion on how I need to parent. Um, I think it's really teaching for me because I didn't understand my feelings. It's really giving her the space and capacity to feel how she's feeling in the moment with the boundary of no wallowing, right? You know, you can not feel good or have whatever and express it and ask for help. Right. And she has, that's amazing. But it's also, you know, you don't like your teacher. You still have to do the work. Right. I think the thing as she progresses into her teen years, my personal struggle as a parent is to not make everything better. 
I think children in the world today know trauma, but they don't know how to deal with difficulties, right? So she has to learn that struggling is okay. You cannot get it right the first time. You cannot be the best at something. You can be in a bad mood, but then you have to learn to cope. And so if you're having trouble coping, then that's a skill that I need to help you with. I teach her what friends are. No one taught me that one. Friends are not a-holes. They should not make you feel bad about yourself. It's also not ride or die. That's a ridiculous thing too, right? So, you know, in this world, like it is a boundary. It is knowing who you are, me loving her for who she is and how she wants to express herself and then holding in my own garbage, right? Because of course they will poke yours and you're like, gosh, I just wish you would just, but it's, it's her journey to figure that out. And for me, it's my job to help her find the things she loves in life. That's my job. It's help her to be able to speak her mind. And it's helpful for me to teach her how to say no and make choices, right? I know how I need to be loved is very different than how my daughter will need to be loved. I just know we're very different people. So I even tell, I teach her that, which is my husband and I are exceedingly direct. And we don't take it personally, right? I don't like you right now, please go away. Or this is not working for me or whatever it is. We're really, I don't need it. I don't need the compliment sandwich when we're dealing with something. I just want to, I would just like need it. Sometimes that is, I need more time to process how I'm feeling because you think fast and I'm deep in my feelings. So I teach her, you can say what you need. You can say what you need to, so you can figure out what you want. If you don't want someone who's as big and strong and loud as daddy, then don't be with someone like that. It doesn't, it won't work for you. You need someone way more emotionally um, um, open and available to everyone. Like that's just like more of her style. I think for me, that's what parenting is. Exposing them to as much as I possibly can so she can find what she loves and then rooting for her and helping her get through those hard times. But she should learn that it's okay to not win. You're gonna fail sometimes like that. Those stumbling blocks are important to make a whole person. Right on, right on. Okay, can you tell us with all your experiences, what, is there something that kind of sticks out that something that you learned that was extremely valuable to you and something you'll never forget? I think it's so funny. I think it's that asking for help. Yep. I think it's, it's okay to ask for help. Um, when you do it, I love how you were explaining about for men, how that might be go against masculinity. Um, and for women, we're taught we're like innately nurturers, right? So somehow it's a fault if you can't do it all, right? So, you know, maybe different sides of the same coin feeling the same thing. But I do believe that asking for help is so vital. It's just vital. It's kind of like, um, so we all know I, I went through a bunch of crazy stuff. I also moved as a junior in high school right before my house burned down. So that was fun. And what I learned in that was saying hello is the hardest word, right? Everyone's kind of nervous to meet you. So if you say hi, right, in person, 
not creeping, like slide into a DM. I mean, like in person saying hi can really be the hardest thing, but you never know who you're going to meet. So I am a big proponent of that as well. So when I got to college, meeting people was not as hard because I'll pretty much walk up to anyone and say hi. You know, that's that's funny that you say that because that's exactly how my dad was. He, he would say hello to people that he never knew if, if, if we were driving and he saw, let's say we were in Ohio and he saw a car with license plates from Michigan where the family originated from, he'd pull up next to him and say, Hey, how you doing? I used to live in Detroit. How are you? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm a big dancer. I love dancing and that's the other thing I'll do with anybody. Absolutely. Anybody, if you're dancing and I want to dance, I'm right there with you. But there's a, do you have top golf in LA? So there, there was yeah. a top golf here and we were at a friend's party, but the people next to us had music going and they were dancing. And I was like in my chair. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. I was like, I looked at Rusty and he's like, go ahead. And I was like, and I got up and they're like, yeah. And I was like, what's up? And all of his friends were like, what, what is your wife doing? He's like, oh, she's just being her. She's doing her. Right. So I think that's the beauty of finding someone who loves you. They give you the space for all of it. Right. That's exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. And I want to dovetail that with the last question is personally, how do you describe masculinity? So this is such an interesting question right now, because I think the definitions in crisis I do. I think it's in crisis um, because I think sometimes men just think being masculine is toxic, right? Because of all how media is portraying it. But for me, it's, an, it's the men's expression of self, right? Like I think there's, there should be a lot of room in what masculinity is. Um, and for me in women, it, it's the balance to the nurturer. So like I used to just identify my masculine nature as the go-doer, the getter, the go-getter. I could do it, the worker. But I think that's kind of antiquated now, right? Because I've, I, I also thought my feminine side was weaker because I just watched my mom endure my dad. And I didn't want to endure anyone right? Although you end up doing it because you attract what you know. You do what you know, even if what you know you hate, right? So in my younger relationships, it was a lot like that. Um, so yeah, I think masculinity is the way that men express themselves. I think it's a power. I think you should not be afraid of it. I don't think you should think it's bad. I just think you have to figure out what it means for you as a man in your life. How do you define it now? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, I look at three things. And if a, if a man has mastered these three things, I think he's on his way to being a masculine, an, uh, an integrated, healthy, masculine man. Number one, a man has to be strong. And I'm not just talking about lifting boxes and lifting pianos down the stairs. I'm talking about a guy who is willing to have that delicate conversation 
with his child, his wife, somebody at work. And he knows that the message may not be high, you know, welcomed with warm arms and it's going to be difficult to hear, but it's the truth and it needs to be said. Number two, men take life too seriously. They need to lighten up <laughs> and realize that, that life is, you know, to enjoy, to have fun. And too many men are, are just, you know, walking around so serious about, I got to get that job. I got to get that car. I got to get those clothes. I got to get the, all these women, blah, 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 blah. But I think it's the flip. I, I think that men, you know, the lightness, I mean, my girlfriend says, you know, that I make her laugh. Mm -hmm. And that's an important attribute that she's attracted to as well as intelligence. So, you know, those are important things. And the third thing is spirituality. Mm. That man has to be connected some way, somehow. Doesn't matter what he chooses. There's a million ways to plug in whatever he feels most comfortable with to have that base, that grounding mechanism that belief in in the, the creator because you know i'm i'm powerless over what anybody else does or thinks or says i can't i i can't make them do something or say something now <clears throat> before i got enlightened i was the king of trying to smash that square peg into a round hole and I would force it and I would get in your face and tell you whatever I thought you needed to hear and teach you a lesson and run over people, mm. you know, between me and that person and hurt, there'd be a lot of hurt and anger. And once I got sober and did that self-discovery, I looked at all that behavior and that was the aha moment. That was where I said, my God, you have been acting so immature, like a total jerk, and with such ego that, you know, it was embarrassing for me to see what I was doing. But this is the key for men or really anybody, is to take that time to do some self-discovery. And it's not just something that you do on January 1. Yes. You know, I have to do it every day, every night, and look to see if, if my garbage came out consciously or unconsciously on someone that it should have never happened. And if it did happen... I need to clean it up right away. Yeah. Whether it's an email, a text, or a phone call, whatever it is. And that's that's one thing that my girlfriend and I commit to is we can get into it, but before the day is done, we're going to clean it up. Yep. Don't go to bed mad. Right. 
I'm, I'm a big believer of that one. You're, you're, I, I am in total alignment with what you're saying. I, I think that is, that's what a man is. Someone who can own who they are, the good and the bad, and wants to do better, right? That, I yes. mean, that's it. We can do that. We can do that. How long have you been sober now? Eight and a half years. That's a good amount of time. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, you know, I sponsor guys and work with them and speak on panels at mental institutions. And, you know, it's just, it, it's a way of life that I never knew before. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what boundaries were. Yeah. my own or violating others. And this is, you know, opened me up to be the man I've always wanted to be and, and understand what my purpose really is to help other men and, and others who are in relationships that because of this masculinity issue, you know, they're missing each other. Mm -hmm. And it's just because the man doesn't have an awareness of his role he thinks he knows but you know he's got to be that that bowl where the oatmeal he can keep the oatmeal hot and warm meaning the woman is mm -hmm. in a good place and happy yeah and, and women have to learn to receive I think within this world, because I like to say you can have everything, but just not all at once. And that whole thing about asking for help, it's okay to lean into your partner, yep. right? Like, and get that support and strength. It's okay. There are some traditional roles that they kind of still work. It, it's okay. If you want a very non-traditional relationship or whatever, go to town, but it's, it, that is about a conversation, just like you were saying between two people, two adults, right. Who are figuring themselves out. And I think that's beautiful. I think it's like when women are like, I know how to open the door. I'm like, well, isn't that just a, a gesture of kindness? Can you not receive the kindness? Right. And like, that's the thing that I work a lot. Actually, I had a client come in a couple of years ago who was very much active in addiction. And it was a man and he was an alcoholic. And I was like, I appreciate you coming, but I can't work with you because you need to be sober. I could smell the alcohol on his breath and his clothes, you know, like how, when someone's really good in their addiction. So I was like, I'm really sorry. And, and, and I was like, don't drive. <laughs> like I was, it was just the most horrible situation for me. Cause I had no control over all of that, but I just knew I could not, I would not enable and it wouldn't matter what I said, right? It was a way to active in addiction. So, yep. yeah. Okay. As everybody can see, Holly's story is quite remarkable. She's a self-made woman of courage, bravery, and giving to her community. A true role model for our world today. We're honored that you spent time with us today. Do you have any final thoughts? No, I just want to thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I have a book out, like you said, it's on Barnes and Noble or Amazon. It's Real Not Perfect, How to Become Your Happy, Authentic Self. I'm Holly Rachel Hughes, and the book is a step-by-step -step process to define yourself in your own terms. It teaches you how to create and maintain boundaries. And then once you have all of that, what do you do? You go find your joy. 
So if you would like to take it slowly in the privacy of your own home, it's like a healing session in the book. I hope you take a moment and check it out. Great. Love it. Well, Holly, I look forward to continuing our dialogue moving forward so that I can learn from you so I can help others. And thanks again. Listeners, please look out for our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts, including the Mental Health News Radio Network and HealthyLife.net, as well as Apple Podcasts. And keep your eyes out for my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a book about relationships, depression, suicide, and how toxic masculinity affects relationships between men and women. Feel free to contact me for speaking engagements through my website, timcrass.com. T-I-M-K-R-A-S-S dot com, timcrass.com. And don't forget, have fun, everybody. <laughs>